From 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 15, I'll preach this morning from the title, Petition in the Gaps. Petition in the Gaps. Some of you, if you try hard enough, can remember being a child and the impatience you felt this time of year. It seemed like Christmas was never going to get here. It was never going to arrive. Maybe you didn't celebrate Christmas going, growing up, but, but there was maybe another holiday whose, whose delights and anticipations you literally counted down to day by day. There, there are people in my household who are crossing off the days on the calendar right now. And one of the things I noticed as a kid was that the adults in my life didn't seem to experience the same urgency I felt as the holiday approached. And I, I wondered, even then, did, did, did Christmas somehow become less special as you got older? Well, I am now older. And the answer is no. No, at least for me, Christmas does not become any less special. But, but something has changed. What has changed for me is the weeks leading up to Christmas. No longer does this time, these weeks, no, no longer does it feel like a delay to me. The delay before the, the eventual celebration. Now these weeks of waiting feel full of possibility. Possibility to slow down, to reflect, to anticipate with joy our Lord's birth and return. The days and the hours and the minutes leading up to December 25th have not changed at all. But my perspective on this time has absolutely changed. In our passage, the author of 2 Peter was attempting to provoke a a similar shift in how the church experienced time. Some of these early Christians expected that Jesus would return soon after his ascension. Maybe it'd just be a few days, weeks, months, maybe a couple of years. And the fact that they were still waiting felt to them like a disappointing delay. Was God slow? But by highlighting God's goodness and God's desire for all to be saved, the the author of our letter reminded the church that God was patient. For the sake of salvation. I get discouraged by delays. On Wednesday night, I shared with my Bible study small group how frustrating it has been for me to have to wait for these insurance bids on the facility our church is considering purchasing. It really does seem to be taking forever from my perspective. During our prayer time at the end of Bible study, one of our group members prayed that I would remember that God's timing is always better than mine. And I promise you, I am not exaggerating even a little bit, that as soon as she prayed that, my perspective began to change. I realized as we were praying that that I needed to be asking God in prayer, not just for the insurance bids to hurry up and come through, but that God would open my eyes to what he is doing during this so-called delay. 
this Advent, we are remembering that God is with us in the space between his promise and the fulfillment of his promise. God is with us in the gap between the resurrection and the return. And he is with you in every gap between God's desire for you and the fulfillment of that desire. From God's promise to you and your current reality, God is with you in the gap. And as the early church found, grasping that it was not... Uh, that it was patience that we were experiencing, uh, that it was patience and not delay that we are experiencing. Grasping that difference changes a lot. If God is delayed, we feel one thing. If God is patient, we're going to act and live very differently. And so today, specifically, I want to consider how this perspective changes not just how we live, but how we petition God in prayer, how we bring our requests to God. So here's my big idea this morning. God's patience prompts our petition. If God is being patient with us, and if the purpose of his patience is salvation, then how we live will reflect that saving patience. How we pray will reflect That saving patience. God's patience prompts, provokes, inspires our petition. So from these verses, I want to offer three prayers of petition, which God's patience inspires. Petitions for repentance, petitions for holiness, and petitions for peace. Repentance holiness, and peace. But first, before we get to these three petitions, I need us to remember what comes after God's patience. Because while we live in the gap between Christ's resurrection and his return, our passage is very, very clear that Christ will return. And it is the vision of our Lord's return which anchors us in this time of God's petition prompting patience. So in verse 12, the author of second Peter writes about the coming of the day of the Lord. And the word here for coming is the Greek word parousia, which I hope a handful of you kind of perk up at because we spent some time on this word back in September when I preached the sermon on the life everlasting. The language of parousia is is the language of revealing, of uncovering, to describe Christ's return to make all things new. The very significant implication for all of us to grasp today is that all of the New Testament authors were completely and profoundly convinced that the parousia, that Christ's return, changed how you live today. That knowledge that Jesus was coming back impacted how you live today. I know that for a lot of us, when we think about Jesus's return, it's kind of an esoteric, theoretical thing to maybe kind of bounce different theologies around about. No, for the early church, conversations about Christ's return had everything to do about how we live today. It impacted the immediate. Now, there's way more that we cannot say about Jesus's return than that we can say. It's mostly mystery, according to scripture. Can you be okay with that? 
I can be okay with that. But there are a few things that we can say from this passage about Jesus's return. A few characteristics. The first is that it will be unexpected. The author says it will be like a thief. He's just quoting Jesus, who in a couple of different places in the Gospels describes his return as it'll be kind of like a thief. In other words, nobody's going to know when it's going to happen. So don't waste time trying to figure out when it's going to happen. It's going to surprise everybody. Nobody's going to be right about when it was supposed to happen. So stop. It's going to be like a thief. You're going to be caught off guard. It's going to be unexpected. The second characteristic is that it will be revealing. Verse 10, the author writes, the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. The the word here is a revealing, a a discovering, a, a finding. It's like when you pull up your couch cushions. You're like, oh, that was just there all this time? It's some good stuff, right? You're like, oh, there's like, there's some, I could buy myself, I'm going to say a hamburger, uh, 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 an impossible burger with that, with that money. And then there's some nasty stuff in there too. You're like, that is a whole little ecosystem of mold growing on that food that's underneath my couch. It's revealing. Christ's return will reveal, it will disclose what is true and present in our world. Again, there's nothing particularly unique about this. Jesus says this himself in Luke chapter 8. He says, For nothing is hidden that will not be disclosed, nor is anything secret that will not become known and come to the light. What what we need to see here is that this is a, a judgment scene. This is a scene where everything that had been covered up or explained away or justified is now in the light. There's no more justification. There's no more hiding. There's no more sweeping under the rug. It's all in the light. It's all been revealed. And this is not just a judgment scene. This is a a judgment scene where God himself is the judge. The author writes in verse 10 that heavens will pass away with a loud noise. And this seems to be an Old Testament echo when when loud noises and, and roars are often associated with the presence of God. When everything is purified and refined, the prophet Joel writes that the the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth shake. That's the, the vision of everything being revealed. Jesus will return to judge the sin and the evil which are destroying this world. How do you feel about that? How do you respond to that? I think for some of us, that's a frightening thing to get our minds around. Because if we are honest, we are are very clear that that the, the, the wickedness, the evil, the sin that needs to be judged doesn't just exist out there. That it's here too. That that we are complicit, that our own hearts have been corrupted as well. That, that we don't stand somehow at a distance from what is wrong with the world, but, but somehow we have to confess as well that we are what is wrong with the world. The other thing, though, I think we might feel is some relief at this vision of God's revealing judgment. Because there is some stuff that's wrong with our world. There is some stuff that needs to be judged in this world. There are some places where God's justice needs to roll down like waters and like a mighty stream. 
And some of you this morning, you feel like you are that person crying out for God's justice. And it feels delayed to you. And the promise of Christ's return is a, is a promise that all will be made right. Jesus' return also is a renewing event. The earth and the heavens, the, the author says, will be made new. When Christ returns, there will be a radical break with the past, a radical discontinuity with the past, but it won't be a discarding of. It will be a renewing of where all will be made new. All will be redeemed. Everything will be revealed, but it will not be thrown away. The heavens and the earth will be made new. So at Jesus's return, then it's going to be unexpected. It will be revealing and it will be renewing. And again, according to the early church, knowing this changes how we live today. God is not being slow. God is not distracted. God is not delayed. He will return. And for now, his patience has a purpose, and it's for our salvation. It's for our salvation. Before his unexpected revealing and renewing return, God patiently waits that we might accept his salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection, and that we might then point all of creation to salvation and flourishing in our Lord Jesus. I think that knowledge of Jesus' return should provoke fear and trembling. Who, Who desires to stand before the roaring, holy God? But for everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus, this should not be a debilitating fear. This should not be a fear that causes us to hide, to retreat. Rather, it is the proper awe and wonder of considering the moment where we behold our Lord whose return will make all things new. Quick rabbit trail. When we gather for worship on Sunday, one of the things that, that, that I and others of us pray for is that we will have a taste of that future day. That we will not come in this room thinking that we are just going through a routine or a ritual that we, you know, I put my sweater vest on today and my pocket square on, and we're going to go do some church and then whatever you're going to do after church that we instead would encounter a taste of that future day when the Lord's roar, his presence, his holiness, his justice is not clouded by anything else. It's our prayer when we gather and worship that that we would not have a passive posture, kind of leaning back on our heels, looking at our watches, how much longer until my children can go off to Kid City and and, and how long is Pastor David going to preach today, but that we would be hungry for an encounter with the living God who will return. If you're new to new community, what you need to know about us is we want to be a people who who do not play around at worship, do not play around at church, who do not play around at prayer. We actually believe this stuff, like for real, for real, that Jesus is coming back and that it changes everything for us. Somebody say amen. Okay, rabbit trail over. Remembering that we are not being patient with a slow God 
but that God is being patient with us changes a whole lot. Maybe it's not so much that we are waiting on God, but that God is graciously, patiently waiting on us for us and for our salvation. So today, I I want us to, to keep that in mind as we turn now to these three prayers of petition. Because this knowledge of Jesus' return is what inspires these ways of coming before our Lord. So first, God's patience prompts our petition for repentance. Can you say repentance? Yeah, I'm gonna, you're going to be better the next time I ask you. Okay. Verse 9, the author says, But God is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Repentance has two sort of movements to it. The first is turning away from sin, from evil, from wickedness, from anything that's not of God. And the second is turning to God, to God's will, to God's ways, lining ourselves up with what God is doing in the world. This is repentance. It's active. It requires our whole life. It's not just like a change of, of, of mental thought or, or theology. It's like you, you can watch repentance happen, happen in real time. So, um, so we, we turn from sin in repentance. Now, in Second Peter, the author gives kind of three primary examples of the sin that he's wanting the early church to turn from, related to, to money or greed, to sexual immorality, and to slander. In, in chapter 2, these are the, the kind of three main sins that he invites the early church to consider. God's patience with us allows us to ask, is my life aligned with God's will? In this time of patience, in this time of living in the gaps, we are able to ask this question, does my life align with God's will? And this is a a critically important question for you and I to ask. The early Christians were profoundly shaped by their culture's assumptions about everything, but in particular here, about sex, about money, and about speech. These are the ones that this author elevates. And they were discovering that their culture's assumptions were very different than God's will for them. And this was going to take some repenting. This was going to take some learning how to align their lives with God's will. Anybody know that this is not just like a first century thing? This is an us thing too, right? We as well live in a culture whose assumptions are often very different than God's will for us. We too are very prone to make decisions about money, about speech, about sex through our cultural lens. But here's the thing that we all need to recognize. If you're a follower of Jesus, following Jesus always puts you out of step with cultural norms, no matter when you live or where you live, always puts you out of step with cultural norms. That's just part of being a Christian. So we might ask ourselves questions like this. Is the way that I think about sexuality and sex a bit strange to my non-Christian friends? Is the way that I give away my money generously out of step to our consumeristic society? Is the way that I respect the power of my words weird to the coarse and caustic discourse that is our norm in this society. And if not, if not, if how we treat uh, language and sex and money is mostly acceptable to our society, then you and I have some reflecting and some repenting to do. 
Obviously, this is not just about money and language and sex. It's just that scripture tends to identify these three pretty regularly as places you and I are vulnerable to conforming to cultural norms. But we could add to that list, couldn't we? Cultural norms having to do with uh, the priority of safety above everything else. Seeking status, regardless of the cost to somebody else. Of the violence, again, that's not just out there, but that we contribute to in different ways. We, we could add different cultural norms to this as well and ask, how am I conforming or not to these? Okay, here's the good news. Here's the good news. Following Jesus is all about repentance. For all of us. <laughs> There's none of us who are, like, we've reached a level where we don't have to repent anymore. It's just part of the Christian life. Part of following Jesus is repenting. We all get confused. We all get turned around. It's super easy for me, without even being aware that I'm doing it, to find my security and how much money is in our bank account. It just is. We all get turned around. And the really good news is that God desires our repentance, which is to say God desires us to experience his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God desires us to experience what it looks like to live in harmony with who God is and what God is doing in the world. So if you have fallen into, just for an example, cultural assumptions about anxious scarcity, God wants you to repent and to align yourself with his abundant and blessed will. God doesn't want you to be living as an anxious, scarce person regardless of what our society tells us is true. So this week, we're asking you to confidently petition God. Last week, we lamented. This week, we are petitioning. And and one of the first ways you can petition is to petition about repentance. How do I do that? Listen to the psalmist. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. That's a petition for repentance. God, I don't even know what's going on below the surface, but you do. You know where I'm at a joint with you, God. Show it to me so that I can turn back to you. So petition God for repentance this week. Now, here's my hunch. When I say this, some of you already know the repenting God has for you. Like if you're honest, you already know. Some of you already know how you have justified greed in your life. Some of us already know how we have explained away sexual immorality in our life. Some of us know how how we have reinterpreted our slander as just speaking the truth prophetically. Like if we're honest, we know. But we will also be surprised. If you pray a petition of repentance, you will be surprised by God. If you are open, God will reveal new opportunities for you to get lined up with God's goodness and God's abundance. Remember, there's no arriving on the Christian life. We are always on the way. So when God reveals areas that you need to repent, don't feel discouraged by that. Just recognize this is just part of discipleship. This just means God is talking to me. This just means God wants to give me more, do more in my life, lead me into greener pastures. It's a good thing. And once you experience God's goodness in one area of repentance, you're going to be more open to examining other areas of your life as well. For example, if you get convicted that you've been leading a greedy life and and you start to intentionally choose to live beneath your means so that you can be extravagantly generous to others and then you start experiencing God's miraculous provision in your life, 
you start experiencing God's tangible material blessing in your life, guess what? You're going to be like, oh, where else can I repent? Because <laughs> this is good. Because every time we think we're making a sacrifice for God, what happens? God meets that with his abundance, with his blessing, with his salvation. I promise you, you cannot sacrifice God. You just can't. And so you will experience God's goodness and your heart is going to be open for, for more areas where I can repent into the will of God. So that's the first one. God's patience prompts our, our prayer, our petition, our request for repentance. The second one, get ready. God's patient prompts our petition for holiness. Can you say holiness? That's a little better. We got one more to come. See if you can really. Okay. The author says in verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be leading lives of holiness and godliness? The author, again, is remembering Jesus's unexpected revealing and renewing return is remembering God's patience. And these realities cause him to say, we we have to prioritize holiness and godliness. Given God's patience with us, given Jesus's return, we have to prioritize holiness. Now, here's my guess that when some of you hear the word holiness, what you think of is sort of like a fence, a fence of things not to do, right? Like, like stay on this side of the fence and you'll be holy, cross this fence and you're going to be in trouble. I want to suggest that fences are necessary sometimes. Like if you have a toddler in your home in a staircase, you need one of those little fences to keep the kid from tumbling down the stairs. If you are in recovery for any form of addiction, you need the fence of loving accountability to keep you on the path to healing and flourishing. If you've broken your arm, you need a cast to function like a fence so that your arm can be restored and healed. Fences can be good. There are times when the pursuit of holiness might feel like a fence. But fundamentally, holiness is an identity. At its deepest, holiness is simply who we are as God's people. First Peter chapter one, the author there says, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. This is why I think the author links holiness and godliness, because as we, we pursue holiness, we live more into the people God created us to be so that we can reflect God's image into the world. It's as though the author is saying, live as God created you to be. Live as the people God created you to be. Live as someone who reflects the beauty of God into our world. What does that look like? We could spend a whole long time just filling up lists of what it looks like to live this kind of beautiful, holy life. A little example, the fruits of the Spirit, evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Live lives of love joy, and peace. Live lives of patience, kindness, and generosity. Live lives of faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I hope you're getting a sense. Holiness is not a fenced-in life. It is a life captivated by the goodness and righteousness of God's will. It is a life expansive with grace. When you meet someone who's growing in holiness, they are not dour. They're not gloomy. They are not afraid to somehow be contaminated by other people or places. 
When you encounter someone who is growing in holiness, you recognize they are deeply rooted in their identity in God. They are unafraid of proximity to messy situations or messy people. They are so quick to respond with grace and mercy when others are coming hard with judgment. They are aligned with those who are overlooked and disregarded. They walk in harmony with creation's rhythms of work and rest. They have a posture of prayerful delight toward their God. It's attractive. Why? Because holiness looks like Jesus. Holiness looks like Jesus. So, so here's the thing about praying for holiness. Left to ourselves, you and I are going to pray about the stuff that's right in front of our face. Like if, if it's going to be hard for you to pay January's bills, that's what you're praying about right now. If you have a child who you like are at your wits ends about, that's what you're praying about right now. And that's good. Do that. Pray for those things. The, the, the important thing about remembering that we live in the season of God's patience, we remember Christ's return, is that it provokes us to also pray for holiness. We want to become the people God created us to be. We want to become the people Jesus saved us to be. We want to become the people who the Holy Spirit is transforming us to be. We want to become the people who one day we will be for all of eternity in the presence of our God. And we can begin growing into that right now. Amen? So God's patient prompts our petition for holiness. And then last one, God's patience provokes our petition for peace. Say peace. Peace. Therefore, beloved, verse 14 says, while you are waiting for these things, strive to be found by him at peace. These petitions for repentance and holiness, they are deeply personal petitions. And the petition, the request for peace is personal as well, but it it absolutely has an outward orientation, an outward focus to it as well. We are to be found by God at peace. This reflects Jesus' blessing in Matthew chapter 5 when he says that the peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called children of God. The peacemakers are blessed. Again, there are interior elements to this. Some of us deeply need peace in our hearts this morning, peace in our minds this morning. But please do not limit the vision of peace to just our interior lives. These early Christians were very aware that they lived between the resurrection and the return, which meant that there was still hostility in the world. That they were called to be peacemakers in very tangible, practical ways. These early Christians had in some way experienced the backlash from a culture that didn't recognize Jesus as Lord as it worshipped Caesar as Lord. So they knew what it felt like to need peace, not just in here, but like in my life. As I move through the world with my neighbors at my workplace, I need peace. And so the author uses this word to to strive for peace. You could translate it as labor over peace. Like what you need to picture here is that this is an effort. There's some sweat. There's some intention. There's some strategy. There's, There's a cost to laboring for peace. 
Again, interior peace. Yes, good, necessary. But picture here, please, laboring for peace as war rages in Gaza. That's what we need to feel. Laboring for peace as some schools in our city receive fewer resources than do other schools in our area. Laboring for peace as Latin American immigrants and migrants and refugees are bused to a city they've never been to before and then settled in black neighborhoods whose residents have known political destabilization forever. Laboring for peace as members of your family treat each other as enemies to defeat or problems to solve. Laboring for peace as disagreement with that beloved friend threatens to pull you apart. That's the feel. Laboring for peace. Knowing that God's patience is for salvation, we are then called to strive for peace where other people have just accepted a status quo of hostility. Like you got people in your life today who have just, this is just what it is. This is just how it's always going to be in our city, in our country, in our extended family, in this marriage, in this friendship. This is just going to be what it is. We've thrown in the towel to the status quo. But when we recognize where we are, when we recognize that God is being patient with us for our salvation before Jesus' return, we are provoked to strive for labor for peace when other people have given up. And here's what happens when we do. We very quickly discover what we're up against. We discover that this laboring and striving for peace is ultimately not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. It is a spiritual battle. We recognize, in other words, that we cannot make peace on our own. We recognize the impossibility of peacemaking, and so it drives us in prayer to the Prince of Peace. Have you noticed this trend that anytime there's some really spectacular, terrible tragedy in our our country, there'll be one set of politicians who say, well, I'm, I'm sending thoughts and prayers. And then there'll be another set of politicians who say, stop it with your thoughts and prayers. What we need is action right now. And I want to say that for Christians, that's a false dichotomy. That's a false dichotomy because we understand we are peacemakers. We are clear that it's active, that it requires our participation, that it requires our strategy, that making peace requires our effort. We're clear on that. But then we come up against stuff that we can't change under our own strength, wisdom, knowledge. And we say, oh, we got to be praying, too. Oh, all of our actions have to be undergirded with prayer. All of our strategies have to be undergirded by prayer. All of our efforts, all of our organizations for peace have to be permeated with petitioning the Prince of Peace for his victory in this area. It's not an either or for us. This week, you're going to be petitioning God for repentance. You're going to be petitioning God for holiness. And you're going to be petitioning God for peace. Those are the three things. Repentance, holiness, and peace. There's a lot that we need to pray about when it comes to peace these days, right? So how do you pick? Because you get overwhelmed by this. So here's what I want to suggest just for this week. Pray for peace wherever peace feels most impossible to you. Because that's the place where you are immediately brought up to your own limitations. I can't do this. I can't fix this. I can't make this happen. So you go into that immediately understanding that this will only happen as God does the miraculous. So that, that would be my suggestion. I invite you to begin kind of thinking about that uh, right now. So choose this week 
an impossible prayer. Maybe it's very large scale. It's war. It's political corruption. It's, it's systems of white supremacy. Maybe it's very personal. Maybe it's a very particular relationship. Maybe it's uh, a long battle with self-hatred. Maybe it's despair about uh, your future. Wherever feels most impossible, make that your petition for peace this week. And as you do, as you petition for repentance into God's loving will, as you pray for holiness, which reflects the God in whose image you were created, pray as well, petition as well, that God would use you to make peace in that impossible situation. And for some of us, like we just literally stopped praying about the thing because it just felt too impossible. Like that's, that's the thing. And because of who you will be petitioning this week, you should expect that your perspective will change as you pray. Because you are not petitioning a nameless, distant deity. You are not sending out your good vibes and thoughts out into the universe. You are boldly petitioning the God who took on our humanity so that we might know him, love him, question him and bring to him all of our impossibilities. Jesus himself asked this rhetorical question. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? We bring the impossible things to God. Petitions for peace which seem absurd in our eyes. And yet in prayer, we are encountering the God for whom impossible is not a legitimate category of description. We are encountering a God for whom unlikely is not an accurate way to describe anything. We will encounter a God for whom difficult is not a meaningful definition of whatever you have that is twisted up and upside down in your life right now. We bring our impossible petitions for peace to the author of Shalom. And what do we find? We are reminded that the unlikeliest of all futilities, the most difficult of all improbabilities, has already been accomplished by the God who submitted to our flesh and entered our impossibilities. We petition the God who turned water into wine who turned capsizing storms into cathedrals of worship, who turned diseased flesh into thriving health, who turned cast-offs and outcasts into beloved friends and indispensable family members, who turned tormented souls into hopeful futures, who turned shame-filled into honor-bound and sin-sick into salvation-declaring and used up into Sabbath-rested. He's already done all of that. We petition the God who, considering the impossibility of our entrapment to sin, offered himself for our complete liberation. Though we lived as enemies of our creators, in Christ, eternal peace has already been made. We have been reconciled through the death and resurrection of the God for whom nothing, absolutely nothing is impossible. So I'm inviting you to bring your impossibilities to him this week. Petition him boldly for a spirit of repentance, 
a heart that desires the will of God above everything else. Petition him for for a, a longing for holiness that you might live a life of extravagant freedom in the likeness of our Savior. Petition him for peace, impossible peace, peace which passes all worldly understanding and expectation and knowledge, peace which can only be won by the God who has won salvation already for all of his creation. Amen.